Hello and welcome to the new season of the Mindful Initiative podcast. This season we are very excited to bring you a series of guests from all over the world. Our first podcast will be with the great Krishna Das. This episode will be released on November 27th. To begin this season, we are re-releasing our podcast with Swami Sarva Priyananda ji. This is our most popular podcast out of the 28 episodes that we have released. This is also an opportunity for us to invite you to listen to his talk when he is visiting Bangalore on November 18th. This talk will be hosted at IIM Bangalore from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. The registration link is on our website. You can reach out to us at info at themindfulinitiative.com for any other information. Until you hear our new episode in a couple of weeks, please enjoy listening to Swamiji's podcast. Thank you so much. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mindful Initiative podcast. I am beyond joy today because we have been joined by uh, Swami Sarvpriyananda ji from the Ramakrishna order for this podcast. Swami ji is the minister and spiritual leader of the Vedanta Society of New York. He was the inaugural fellow at the Harvard Divinity School in uh, 2019-20. Swami ji joined the Ramakrishna Math and the mission in 94 and he received sannyas in 2004. He has served in various capacities at the Belur Math. Prominently he was the first registrar of the Vivekananda University at Belur Math. The use that practical feeling of freedom and the real use would be spirituality specifically what you said prayer. Prayer is the recognition that my so called free will is not at all free underlying it is the will of god that's prayer tolerant is, is a very primitive concept it's like a, i am right but i'm just letting you live there is violence implied in tolerance so i'm vivekananda said when he came to the world parliament religions we, we don't just say tolerance we believe in acceptance and that acceptance solves the critical acceptance without further ado welcome swami ji thank you so much for being here thank you for having me nitesh so swami ji when we do these podcasts and interviews we begin with just knowing a little bit about uh, the upbringing and what role spirituality played in their upbringing i think it sets the context for our conversations further so if you can just tell a little bit about that uh, that would be a good start for us Well Nitesh I am a monk of the Ramakrishna order and I really don't think there is anything particularly exceptional about me but having said that I think that the stories of the monks are all unique and very interesting to know it's sort of a pity that the monks do not discuss their uh, purva ashram but I can uh, share some details so 
I grew up uh, in Bhuvaneshwar. Most of my childhood was spent in Bhuvaneshwar, early childhood in Calcutta. And uh, from class three up to finishing my MBA, I was at uh, Bhuvaneshwar. My father was a bureaucrat in the government of India. My mother is a housewife. The main thing was that the, my parents and uh, my grandparents also were very devoted um, followers of Sri Ramakrishna and Ma Sharada and Swami Vivekananda. They were closely connected for two generations with the uh, Ramakrishna order. And we had an ashram nearby. And more importantly, we had a lot of literature, Ramakrishna Vivekananda literature at home. And I was, I guess, I was probably the a part of the last generation before uh, the widespread uh, TV and internet and uh, social media and connectivity. So all we had, luckily, I think, were books. And I became an avid reader. So I think I, I grew up reading a lot of books of Swami Vivekananda and lives of Sri Ramakrishna and other saints and all. And it always appealed to me from the very beginning. I was very interested in spirituality. Yeah, and I guess that's how it started. And my parents used to take me to the ashram sometimes when I was a kid. And after I grew up a little bit, I started going to the ashram myself. And I really liked it. Somewhere along the way, I decided to become a monk. And here I am. Uh, thank you so much. And I hope you didn't mind me asking. I know it's something that the monks don't discuss. Uh, so I really hope that you didn't mind me asking that question. No, that's all right. So I was listening to one of your interviews uh, with Shwetaji and Akshaji at Harvard when you were discussing about your experience. And, and one of the questions that came up is, are you happy with what you're doing? And I think that's an eternal question, which a lot of us keep thinking and asking, are we happy with what we're doing? You know, is this our dharma? Is this something that we would like uh, to continue doing in our life? And also in one of the articles in 2012 at the Vedanta Kesari, you mentioned that we can measure our happiness, which was mentioned in, I think, in the Taitreya Upanishad, Eka Manusha. And I felt that there is no uh, perfect happiness that I have encountered other than some of the saintly folks like you who, are, who have the firm conviction that yes, this is what my purpose of, of the life is. And uh, I think one of the questions that keep coming to my life is, you know, is what I'm doing making me happy? Like, you know, is this my right path? Is it what I should do? And I think it's just not me. So many others that I keep meeting on, on the journey, they're like, you know, I'm not happy with what I'm doing. Maybe I could do something else. How do you know that that the path that you're on is the right one, that this is what my dharma is and this is what I should continue doing? That's a really good question and an important one. Sri Ramakrishna used to say that uh, no matter how many zeros you collect, uh, it's still the value is zero. But if you put one before the zeros, then every zero just keeps on increasing in value. And the whole number, if you put um, one zero, then it becomes 10, and two zeros becomes 100, and three zeros becomes 1,000, and so on. So that one obviously is a spirituality. I mean, we are all in search of that one, which will give us a fundamental meaning and purpose to our life, which contributes to some kind of deep satisfaction and fulfillment in our life. And I have found it in spirituality. And I think spirituality is the answer, is the ultimate answer. It has been so for centuries and millennia in every civilization, particularly in India. Long ago, it was realized that there is this ultimate reality and you have to search for it and realize it in, in your own life. 
And that is actually the ultimate purpose of life. Aurobindo, I like a quote from uh, Aurobindo where he says, if you do it deliberately, you're a yogi. And uh, he doesn't say this, but he just says all life is yoga. That, that's, his, that's the quote. But what it means is, if you're deliberately spiritual, if you follow some path of spirituality, then you are a spiritual, you call yourself a spiritual seeker. If somebody does not follow it, and just says, I'm just living life. But that also is on the same path to enlightenment. It's just a very roundabout and a very difficult and very unhappy path. So what I'm saying here is that one sign of maturity in life is to come to the spiritual path. It doesn't have to be Vedanta, like what I am practicing now. You don't have to become an actual monk, you know, giving up worldly activities and putting on an ochre robe. But it has to be spiritual in some form or the other. And uh, then only everything gets meaning and substance and purpose. You know, so you see what path am I am on? Is this the right path? I could be doing something else. No matter what path we are on, ultimately, none of it will be satisfactory unless that one is there in our lives. And that one is spirituality. And I'm again repeating that spirituality in its widest sense. You could be a devotee, you could be a believer in any one of the religions or none of the religions. You could be spiritual, but not religious. You could even have a kind of atheistic spirituality, you know. But some kind of deep spirituality uh, is a must in our lives. And I've seen that. And it's not difficult. I think lots of people come to this solution. People who are sensitive thinking and who look back upon their experience in life, who look around and look at the experiences of people in general, they come to this understanding. So that's one thing, that there must be spirituality in, in our lives. And that is the source of real happiness, of lasting happiness. Otherwise, there is no other way. Every other experiment in life will drive you back to this answer. Having said that, it is not entirely invalid to ask that uh, what is what I'm doing right or would I be doing something else? I mean, quite apart from the question of spirituality, there is something called Swadharma. Swadharma is something that is in accordance with my own samskaras. There was an ancient definition of Swadharma, which was you know, predicated upon the social structure of uh, ancient India which sort of defined what your role was in life. But that is no longer relevant with our modern society. The core idea, however, is relevant. Your own samskaras, if you work according to your samskaras, your own te innate tendencies, the chances of happiness and fulfillment are more. If you work uh, against your innate tendencies, maybe you're trying to fulfill somebody else's expectations, maybe it's just the force of circumstances, then there'll be a, always be a struggle and affliction and a kind of unhappiness. So yeah, these two things. One is add that one to your life, spirituality, in whatever form possible. If you're not satisfied, if you're unhappy, strengthen that first. Strengthen your spiritual practices, your prayer, your meditation, your service to others, your spiritual philosophical inquiry into the meaning of life, into who I am. Strengthen that, you will find peace and happiness coming, no matter what your actual occupation in life, what your actual situation in life is. That's one. And the second one is that... Uh, it's always good to do something, especially occupation, uh, to do something which is according to one's samskaras, tendencies. I think that is excellently said that we follow the path of spirituality and if it becomes part of our life, it is going to help us for sure. And uh, when I read the spiritual text, I keep uh, imbibing that this is what you should do. And... Um, 
you know shankaracharya ji he came in uh, about a millennia ago and then we had the vishishta and then you know more exploration we had dwaita you know i mean it came they came in sequence everyone saying what to do but the thing that i have found personally a uh, very difficult is how do i do that that question of how is where it becomes a little bit tricky for me huh. personally because you know when i was growing up moms like acha you become you study you'll be doing good you become an engineer you know it'll be okay then you do this i think the the how for the personal journey if if you can shed a little bit light maybe from your own experience i think it'll be helpful yes uh, one of our swamis is a very senior monk of our order swami satyarupananda ji i heard him addressing a group of youngsters college students and in response to this very question ki kaise shuru kare his and uh, how do we start what do we do and how do we start his answer his formula was simple and effective he said nyuntam se shuru karo aur saraltam ka abhyas karo start with the smallest and practice the easiest don't be ambitious suddenly in your spiritual life so for example if you think that getting up early in the morning is uh, is good and so from now on i shall rise before sunrise and if somebody is used to getting up at 9 o'clock in the morning and suddenly getting up before sunrise you're bound to fail the body and mind are not used to it and then we give up rather than that start with the easiest get up 15 minutes earlier or half an hour earlier and that you can do your own mind will tell you that much we are capable of doing so start with the least and practice the easiest so that's how one starts again i'll emphasize that where you start you start with some kind of spiritual practice the simplest things are is there some spiritual reading i'm keeping it very open i'm not even suggesting that it has to be the gita or it has to be um, an advaitic text is there some spiritual reading in your life daily reading it has to be some spiritual text and also some kind of life i would re- recommend the lives of the saints you know swami vivekananda or or, or other modern and ancient and medieval indian and also non indian and across religions so if you actually read their their lives one gets inspired in one's own life from life life inspires life right, basically no matter how many theories we talk about and philosophies we talk about we actually read how shankaracharya or, or ramanujacharya or um, you know uh, sri ramakrishna or chaitanya mahaprabhu about their lives we get inspired that we also want to be like that the second component you need in your life is some kind of devotional practice just simplest saraltam se shuru karo nyuntam ka abhyas karo so so you maybe light a diya in your house have a little place where you have a deity maybe offer a flower chant one shloka is there a service component to our lives so do we volunteer part of our time our energy our money for helping those from which whom we do not expect anything in return even if that is not possible and it's possible for many people even if that is not possible at least the work that we do in the house in the community and at our, in our jobs can we convert that into a spiritual practice into the worship of god the lord at whose feet i put a flower that same lord i'm serving in the office when i'm writing a report in a computer connecting our day to day activities to god and finally the fourth component would be of course be meditation at least once or twice in a day preferably early in the morning and late in the evening when you shut down when we shut down everything shut out the whole world shut out all other people shut out all other thoughts and just focus on 
it could be on God, it could be if you are a very minimalistic practitioner, it could just be on your breath. Absolutely calm and quieten the mind down. So these four practices. And uh, if you are listening carefully, you would have identified the four yogas which Swami Vivekananda talks about. Uh, so there is a jnana component, a bhakti component, a karma component and a dhyana component. So this is where we start. I mean, it's, it's pretty easy. Just look at your uh, routine and say, are these components in place in my daily life? And then go from there. So thank you so much, Swamiji. I think the, the four yogas make a lot of sense. Uh, and then you you speak about Swami Vivekananda Ji. And Swamiji's uh, 157th birth anniversary is coming up in, in a few days. And I remember he used to say, you mentioned about the youth, that youth are not useless. They are just used less. And, you know, that is something that has stuck with me for a long time, that if we don't put people into action, they don't do the work. And I so agree with that. But what is happening is that, you know, somewhere along the world that we are going to extreme views that, you know, what I'm doing is right and what he's doing is right. And earlier I used to see that people used to come to a middle ground, more negotiation is happening that, and even in workplaces, that's becoming a big issue that my way is the only way or it's the highway. And uh, to bring both of them together on the table so that, you know, we respect the other individual's views, we respect the other religions or each other's viewpoint. I think a lot more uh, self-reflection needs to be done. I, that's what I personally think. But my question is, what is it that will put us back onto that path where we converge and, you know, become a better version of the human generation that we are, uh, rather than going into a deep abyss, which is polarizing us in many ways. Mm, that is true. And this is actually a miserable thing which we see in our modern world. It's not just in India, it's even more so here in the United States. As you, If you see the news, you'll see what is going on here in the United States. First of all, it's a sign of weakness. That I, if I cannot listen to another person's point of view, if I cannot understand another person's point of view, while remaining steady in my point of view, if I'm not open to persuasion, if I'm not open to change, it's actually a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of confidence or strength. One of the definitions of strength is the ability to live with contradictions. You have many different points of view. You have many problems in your day-to-day -day life at home and in the office. And you know none of them will be ultimately solved to your satisfaction. If you solve one thing, two more problems will come up. That's the very nature of samsara. To not only live with that, to be comfortable with that, to be able to operate with that. And not to be a doormat. You can always be very firm in your uh, point of view, in the essentials of your view. You'll be very firm. There's a beautiful Taoist saying which I like, that um, be firm as a rock and flow like the water. In matters of essentials, you stand firm as a rock. And in matters of opinion, in a hundred different things, you flow with them with the, like water. Whatever is, seems to be right, whatever seems to be good, you follow that. You can change your point of view also. You can uh, be agreeable with people. But when what is absolutely essential for you in principles, matters of principle, stand firm like the rock. What happened mostly is there are really no principles. It's a very relativistic world. And on matters of opinion, on every little point, we are ready to fight and argue and not even argue immediately demonize the other. So that is a sign of weakness. That is not a sign of strength. In India, imagine the reason why we have 
such an extraordinary, so deep and profound philosophy. Indian philosophy, I think, is the richest in the whole world by far. And one of the reasons we have had it is we have had tremendously different points of view, cross currents of thinking, who always engage with each other, not just tolerant. Tolerant is a very primitive concept. It's like, uh, I am right, but I'm just letting you live. There is violence implied in tolerance. So I mean, Vivekananda said when he came to the world parliament religions, we, we don't just say tolerance. We believe in acceptance. And that acceptance is always a critical acceptance. I am free to put forward my point of view and justify it with reasoning. You are free to put forward your point of view and justify it with reasoning. And we are free to argue and come to our own con- conclusions. And that led to the development of such deep philosophies. And each of the schools, over a period of two, three thousand years at the least, you know, whether it's Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Sankhya, Yoga, the various Buddhist schools, the Jaina schools, which have not yet been fully explored so far by modern scholarship, and of course Vedanta, they developed over thousands of years with to tremendous depth and subtlety. And that's because of this attitude. That I'm willing to listen, not only willing, I'm interested in what you have to say. But you have to say it cogently, you have to say it logically, uh, present your case. And uh, then we interact. And then each school, it didn't develop by rejecting each other or by fighting with each other. They discussed and over time, the DNA of the opponents was incorporated into my school. My thoughts found their way into the thoughts of people who were entirely opposed to my way of thinking. As a result, which, you know, even today, if you look at Advaita Vedanta and Madhyamaka Buddhism, they look like mirror images. They are like almost the final product of Buddhist philosophy it was the Madhyamaka Yoga Acharya synthesis, which forms the basis of Tibetan Buddhism, for example, now. And almost the final product in some sense, not final product, but sort of highest product of rationality, logic. And I would say, that's my perspective, Advaita Vedanta. And how interesting that they seem like mirror images of, uh, of each other. So yes, now how do we do that? How do we reach there? I feel a lot of the solutions are in Swami Vivekananda's teachings, especially his teachings to the youth. So to remain firm on your principles, you need principles in the first place. And that comes from having a goal in life. Swami Vivekananda said the first thing you need is a very high goal in life. Follow your own highest ideal. That is the shortest route to progress. Not because your teachers have told you, not because you've seen it on the screen or it's the latest fashion, but because you have read it all, you have investigated it and found it to be true and found it to be good for all, and then you adopt it. And be open to changing it later also if you, if you feel that something better has come along. So you have a goal in life. I often say that uh, if you ask young people today, What's your goal in life? What's your aim in life? Most people would be puzzled. I don't have. They can give you a le- lecture on what should be the goal of life, what we should do in life, but what exactly is their goal in life? Uh, I mean, in sense of a, an ultimate goal in life, purpose in life, people uh, are confounded, and that's tragic. That is really tragic because this is the age of decisions. Uh, Peter Drucker, the famous management guru, in his management challenges for the twenty-first century, he said. For the first time in 20th century and 21st century, of course, we have choice. For millennia, our forefathers, they lived where they were born. They did the occupations of their forefathers. They ate the food and wore the clothes and married within the, that same community or caste. 
and more or less the life was spent in the same way they had very little choice unless you were a king or a mercenary or something like that or a traveler you were mostly stuck to what life threw at you but for the first time this is all drucker drucker is saying that um, in late 20th and early 21st century we are born in one place we study in another place we work in a third place we live in another place and we maybe retire in another place we belong to one race and we marry into another race we eat food of various continents and cultures we move from job to job to job uh, skill set to skill set so many times in one lifetime so much choice and so much choice calls for wisdom we don't have infinite time so to make wise choices a goal in life is important and it should be a high and noble goal one sign of a high and noble goal is does it benefit others is it only for myself or does others are benefited by it so having a goal in life i mean just look at us as monks we are actually very ordinary people but it, in one sense monks are extraordinary what makes an ordinary person into an extraordinary person it's just the goal that they have chosen that's it that has a transformative power a very high goal you choose that and you live your life according to it over the years life gets transformed i would say to young students who would scratch their heads when i ask them what is your goal in life i said look if you go to belur mat our main monastery and you ask the junior most brahmachari who has joined the order yesterday and you ask the president of the order or the senior most monk of the order one thing they have in common is if you ask them what is your goal in life they will tell you immediately swami vivekananda said atmano mokshartham jagat hitayacha for your own liberation and for the welfare of the world that is the goal and that is my goal that has such a great transformative power first goal in life second is again vivekananda faith in oneself is oft quoted we don't pay attention we don't listen but we quote is uh, that uh, the old religion said he who does not believe in god is an atheist but the new religion says that he who does not believe in himself is an atheist this faith in oneself that i can if others have done it i can do it if there is something that others have not done that also i'll be able to do that so that kind of faith in oneself that's why swami vivekananda admired the character of nachiketa found in the kathopanishad who went to the doors of death to the house of death to in in quest of spiritual knowledge so that shraddha and faith in oneself as swami vivekananda he stressed that that um, if you have faith in yourself then all things in life are possible all this possibility of change and development are possible i was just thinking how in modern thought all these ideas have come to the west especially in the united states a uh, psychologist a few decades ago albert bandura he developed this concept of self efficacy self efficacy means the belief in oneself that i have been able to do these things in the past i can do them again i have cracked this problem in the past so this new problem i can crack now you know i have met many challenges in my life and i have successfully overcome them that has given me a confidence that this challenge also i can face and overcome he saw the psychologist bandura he saw that students who had um, faith in themselves that self efficacy they persisted longer with their question papers they tried more those who did not have that faith they got scared at difficult problems and gave up quickly obviously if you give up you're not going to succeed anyway no matter how intelligent you are and if you keep on persisting the chances of 
you know success academic success are more so faith in oneself a powerful idea swami vivekananda gave uh, the idea of the importance of concentration of focus which is so important in today's life the ability to focus our the powers of our mind on a particular topic and we could go on one thing i would like to say he add here is before we move on is that last year at harvard i met this uh, vietnamese researcher young vietnamese scholar he was working he was a scholar of organizational structures of organizational behavior in business his role, his area was business management now he said he was looking at some of the key ideas central ideas which have come up in the modern west you know belief in human potential that the reality lies within you the search for happiness that that is the goal not just money or the search for fulfillment and happiness these things that we have enormous resources powers within us which which are untapped we are not using and he said behind all of these ideas he began to trace it back where have these ideas come from and he said every time his quest led him back to one name swami vivekananda and i was so happy to hear this it has always been an intuitive feeling for me but i could i had no way of academically proving this and here is this young scholar who had no connection with india who had no particular interest in hinduism who had never heard of swami vivekananda but because of his academic quest is looking at some a set of the most powerful positive ideas in the modern west today and he's tracing it all back to one person who came from india in the late 1890s and from 1893 onwards in less than 10 years he lectured across the united states and sowed these seeds i mean people don't know they don't give enough enough credit they have no idea about who he was many people don't know here but he's at the source of many of these great ideas i hope he publishes soon and he writes books about it yeah thank you swami ji and uh, and i think uh, swami vivekananda his inspiration goes beyond uh, i think uh, generations and generations it's 150 years and i think people are just starting to read about him and and you've you've talked about the stories that he has talked about and so many other things uh, but one thing that you particularly mentioned was self efficacy and and then shraddha that comes along and this whole idea of faith but what i found out is that that faith can go just beyond the boundary you know you can be confident then slowly that self confidence that comes into an overconfidence and that overconfidence you know sometimes pushes people to the extremes which i had mentioned a little while before and i think that whole idea of taking if it benefits the entire humanity what you mentioned if or not uh, entire humanity may be too large a word for someone who is starting their spiritual practice or in their earlier life in beginning stages of their spiritual life but what i have learned is you know this idea of self compassion has been simplified a lot uh, now there's this researcher her name is Kristen Neff and Chris Germer Chris Germer is at Harvard and Kristen Neff is in Houston and they have come up with this idea of self compassion which comes from the karuna which comes from the yoga sutras and uh, they simplify it a lot that what i am doing that you know you remove the ego aspect of it but make it simple which has humanity kindness and being mindful which you mentioned i think if we can simplify things in that regard it will be easier for a younger generation to relate to it not just younger generation i think people who are working as well people who are older as well and my question relates to that that is there a way that we can start simplifying certain things like the way swami vivekananda did right 
he just simplified into four yogas uh, is there a need to simplify our upanishads in more simplistic terms where people can relate to it and uh, that's my first question and i think a follow up question is that in the west there is a lot of discussion about the science uh, backing it up i don't know if we uh, need that all the time or not because science is way behind where spirituality is and i think it uh, i don't know if it'll ever reach that point or not but i think from an understanding standpoint i think that gives people a lot of goals you know if they go to universities if they are academicians they're like you know can i simplify it and and make it accessible to lot more people who are uh, who may not otherwise be interested or may not have time to go deeper into their spiritual studies so if you can talk a little bit about that i think it will be helpful you are right and especially in this country i noticed that is there's a great demand for uh, practical efficiency the questions are are practical what good does this do me i guess that's the spirit of america not just america now it's it's spreading all over the world i mean we have the same mindset now in india also my inner tendency is just the opposite i am more of a theoretician more of a bookworm so i have always been interested in the metaphysics of it and the epistemology of it and the dialectics of it but yes i recognize that ultimately when it comes to challenges of life whenever i have had great questions and challenges in my life it is the simplest direct advice from say from our text especially from vivekananda which has helped me not high uh, metaphysical theories not the most abstract kind of reasoning no yes so simplify not simplistic but practical simple methods which we can put into use so one of the reasons why mindfulness has become so popular here in the west is that it comes without metaphysical baggage it comes without theological underpinnings it's like a secular method which one can practice to get immediate measurable results that's like the call here in, in the united states i'm not sure that i'm totally in sympathy with that kind of an attitude but i understand the need for it so practically again to r- repeat what would be the few simple things that one can do and in broad terms i will not say i will prescribe a particular practice that may depend on your tradition it's good whatever is available to you what your tradition is again a particular meditative practice so it's up to you in our ramakrishna tradition it's a mantra practice so our guru initiates us into an ishta mantra and there is an ishta devata it's it's a visualization meditation and a repetition of a mantra so that is the fundamental meditative practice which we have but it could be um, observing the breath in a, you know, like a vipassana practice or it could be any number of mindfulness practices the core idea is to get some control over the direction of our attention recently at the garrison institute near new york in upstate new york we did a meditation retreat last year so the retreat was on mindfulness meditation uh, kashmiri shaiva meditation a dualistic bhakti a tantric kind of meditation and non dual meditation now a professor of indian philosophy professor indram chakravarti i was discussing the whole retreat with him he said at the end of it all have a session where you look at all that you did find out the differences don't be in a hurry to find out what is similar find out the differences to, to the extreme analyze it thread bare and then synthesize it find out what is common to all of this so we did a short session like that after the whole retreat 
we found one essential thing among the other things one essential thing common to all meditation techniques across various traditions is our attention they are all dealing with our attention the control and direction and focus of our attention so do something in that regard observe your breath repeat a mantra anything whatever is there so that's one very simple thing to do another simple thing to do is study um, study as a spiritual practice study the lives of um, great persons study the great scriptures of the major religions of the world especially the meditative spiritual scriptures may not be the you know the ritualistic part or the more uh, common or mythological part but this the spiritual parts of it and a service component as i said to your life so each yoga reduced to its basic abcds its its basic practices and one little component of that in our, our daily life uh, thank you it reminds me of the three things swami ji said uh, swami vivekananda ji heart to feel brain to conceive and hand to work exactly i think yes uh, we to for a wholesome life we need all three uh, brain to conceive and the cognitive ability the heart to feel the effective domain and the hand to work out the cognitive ability the three things which modern psychology speaks about development of the human personality along these three lines is it's a wholesome development of the human personality perfect uh, we're getting towards the end and you know have uh, uh, this question you know like the way you say that that you're this ordinary human being simple human being another simple human being just like you was gandhi ji and uh, i think in in your talks and my readings about gandhi ji uh, he says he's one simple man in search of god mm. but when uh, uh, when you look at their lives deeply you start to realize that uh, of course you know what you're doing is extraordinary what he has done is extraordinary but then there is lot lot of cost that comes along with it in certain terms that uh, you are giving up worldly things you're giving up materialistic things i i remember him saying that i am this uh, monk who just uh, dresses who needs just one or two pieces and i just need milk uh, and i think in his earlier book he mentioned that i don't need to learn piano i don't need to dress up like a gentleman when i was in i was training for a barrister i just need very simplistic life but when it comes to people who are uh, who are following that path sometimes it it is difficult for them to let go of the desires of the world of the materialistic uh, uh, materialistic things maybe materialistic but you know they might be they might be relationships in life as well people who may not be able to understand you how do you overcome that conundrum that what when i'm going on to this path which i feel is the right way to go forward hmm. yeah you're talking about that there's a cost to this kind of life let me tell you there's no cost at all it's all profit <laughs> so uh, i remember this is a nice story about swami brahmananda who was the president of the ramakrishna order first president of our uh, order and in belur math uh, this is like 100 years ago As a gentleman came and bowed down to swami brahmananda and said oh maharaj you are great you all have given up the world it's so difficult and you you are a really great people so swami brahmananda bowed down even more deeply to that gentleman and he said you are much greater than me why well i have given up the world for god for brahman for the for the infinite given up the finite for the infinite but you have given up the infinite for the finite you have given up brahman for the world 
<laughs> I've thrown away pieces of glass for a diamond and you have thrown away the diamond for pieces of glass. So you are far greater than me. Because of course, he was being humorous. But I'll tell you one interesting thing. This is a mistake to think like that, that I am sacrificing anything particular. I don't think I have, I'm sacrificing anything at all. I remember there was a, like a panel discussion organized for school and college students. I think it was either in uh, Lucknow or in Patna or somewhere like that. And I was conducting it. And we had some, a very interesting panel. I have forgotten the names of most of them, but, but they were very, very interesting people. One person was Anand, if I remember correctly. He started the Super 30 uh, that uh, for coaching kids for IITs, and he had an incredible track record. Um, so he was there. Then there was one gentleman who was from Chennai. He came from a very poor background, but he graduated from IIM Ahmedabad. And he went uh, in Chennai. He has this series of restaurants, a chain of restaurants, where they give food. The leftovers, they collect it and they distribute it among hungry people. Um, there was this another gentleman who was a Silicon Valley entrepreneur who gave up his job and came back. And he has this place where he collects clothes discarded, uh, but um, gives them to poor people who need these clothes. And so a whole lineup was of such people. And so one of the questions was this very question, that you all sacrifice so much. To do, you're doing a lot of good to others, but you sacrifice so much. So I tried an experiment. I asked this entire panel, do you think you've sacrificed a lot? And all of them said in one breath, in one voice, not at all. We all feel very happy. We all feel we, are, we have got much more than what we have given up. I mean, if you tell us to go back there, my Silicon Valley job or that uh, multi multinational corporation job, not at all. So the joy and the fulfillment which comes See, ultimately, we are all searching for happiness and fulfillment, all of us. Some search for it wisely, some search for it, you know, otherwisely. <laughs> so if that's what we are all, uh, I, I mean, the person is looking for millions of dollars, the person is looking to uh, get power or to hold on to power. Uh, you know who I mean. But so, uh, And uh, the person who wants to realize God or the person who wants to serve uh, humanity, all of us are actually looking for fulfillment and um, if you are beginning to find fulfillment you never feel that you have given up anything or you have sacrificed anything or it's a painful process if you feel you have to give up a lot and it's painful don't do it what you feel will give you satisfaction Swami Vivekananda said follow your own highest goal it is your own goal and you feel it's a very high goal not it's being not that it's being imposed on you you follow it you will find happiness it's the shortest route to progress uh, thank you for that. I think that just spawned another question in my mind. And I was uh, reading President Barack Obama's recent book, A Promised Land. And, and in it, he mentions about when uh, when his mother was going through cancer, uh, he couldn't go back to Hawaii to be with her. And he was running for his first campaign, first or the second campaign, I, I don't exactly remember, in Illinois. And somewhere along the lines, he mentioned that maybe I've never thought that I'm the chosen one because I don't believe in destiny. But then things just happened and, and transpired. And we just talked about Gandhiji, we're talking about you as well. That yes, you may not think that you're the chosen one, but sometimes you are the chosen one and you are not aware of that. And this brings up the idea of free will. How much do we have? And, and you've talked a little bit about it before, or maybe a lot uh, about it before. But that's a question that I keep coming up with. If there is no free will at the level that you mentioned, like you know, when we are not able to choose and where we are being driven, 
what is it that free will really is in our day-to-day life? Does it really even exist? Like, why do we even pray if you're not going to get the things that we desire for? I think the combination of prayer and free will is what I'm trying to understand. All right. I'll uh, share an article with you after this. It's exactly about this combination of prayer and free will. Uh, it's by the philosopher I mentioned, Professor Indam Chakravarti. Uh, he wrote this article, Why Pray to a God Who Can Hear the Anklets on an Ant's Feet. So it's a quotation from Sri Ramakrishna. God hears everything, even the sounds of an anklet on the feet of, of an ant. So imagine how tiny they will be and what tiny sounds they make, but God hears that. So his question is, that why pray to such a God who, who knows everything? So there and then the whole article is about free will. So what you just asked. This, so that you should read that article. It's really wonderful. The answer is given at three levels. I'll tell you what are the three levels briefly. First level, at what seems obvious to us. We feel we have free will. I'm going to raise this hand. Whether I will raise it or not, it's up to me. Now I decided to raise it. Now I, ra- now I have raised my hand. So I exercised my free will. I felt I had free will and I exercised it. So I have a choice to do or not to do and it's up to me and I decide. And we all feel like that. All of choice is based on on the assumption that we have free will. Imagine all our justice system where a person can be prosecuted for crimes and charged with crimes is based entirely on the fact that the person had a choice not to commit those crimes and uh, then did commit those crimes. Therefore, the person has to be punished. So you cannot have any kind of justice system, reward and punishment unless you accept free will. You cannot have modern economics. The whole economy depends on consumer choice. You are, you are, how freely we are choosing, we don't know. But anyway, so the whole of life, religion, all the exhortations, do this, don't do that. All religions have do's and don'ts. But that means that they accept that we have free will. Unless we have free will, what's the use of telling me to do this or don't, don't do that? So first level is we have free will. We feel it and our entire civilization, law and economics and um, morality, all of it depends on us having free will. That's answer one, first level. Yes, we have free will. Second answer, not at all. We have no free will at all. If you investigate philosophically, theologically, and now it is increasingly through neuroscience, uh, it seems that we really do not have free will. Science itself is, uh, at least mainstream science, is deterministic. Though somebody said that if you understand quantum mechanics and there's a probabilistic element there and that might give some room for free will. But in general, science is based on causes and consequences, cause and effect. So if there are effects, then there must be causes. And causes and effects are tied. In that case, where is the space for free will? It's a deterministic universe. Back to the very beginning of the universe, everything is sort of uh, predetermined. Determinism goes against free will. In scientific rationalism, goes against free will. There are philosophical discussions which say that leads to paradoxes if you believe in free will. Their theology, every theistic religion, ultimately says it's God's will, not um, our will, whether it is in Hinduism, theistic Hinduism, or Christianity, and so on. And there are attempts to come out of this quandary. But upon investigation, the second level of answer is that probably there's no free will. And it seems that there's no free will. Final answer, third level of answer is that what Professor Arindam Chakravarti has said and some of the higher philosophies in different religions, they come to this conclusion. Use the illusion of free will which you have. 
you, you feel your free will. And the second level proves that it's an illusion. You actually, there's no free will. Use that illusion to recognize that we have no free will. So that would mean what? It would mean prayer. It would mean spirituality. It would mean recognizing that there is something beyond this causal universe, something beyond this deterministic universe, which is actually free. You can, in a theistic worldview, you can call it God. In a non-theistic worldview, you can call it the real self. Swami Vivekananda said free will is a contradiction in terms. There is freedom, um, but that's beyond the range of will. After you attain freedom, after you go beyond the range of will, beyond the level of the mind, there is freedom. The, the soul of the Atman is free. Brahman is free. God is free. The same reality, it is free. Once you descend into the realm of Maya, into time, space and causality, technically there is no freedom. Practically we feel freedom. So use that practical feeling of freedom and the real use would be spirituality, specifically what you said, prayer. Prayer is the recognition that my so-called free will is not at all free. Underlying it is the will of God. That's prayer. Thank you for that. And uh, I would love to read that article as well, but I think so well articulated, so well put in. So towards the end, we ask a few questions, which uh, Swamiji, you can answer in, in one word, uh, one sentence or one paragraph, and then you can choose not to answer as well. So it's perfectly okay. For All right. Sounds that. like fun. Yeah. Um, one childhood memory uh, that brings joy to your mind. Joy. Well, I remember, you know, in those days for seeing examination results, you had to go to the board office and stand in, uh, you know, among thousands of kids and see the results. So my higher secondary examination results, I went and I saw, um, to cut a long story short, I looked at all over the, they used to paste it on boards, all the, all, the, all the roll numbers, and I found my roll number nowhere. And I thought I'd failed or had been, the results had been withheld. And then I found one little piece of paper where there were, 15 names. They used to give the top 15 in the state in those days. So I looked there and others were looking at me pityingly. That obviously nobody was there. Everybody was elsewhere. He, does he think that he's going to be one of the top 15 in the state? And I found my name at the first. So I was just like the state topper. So that's a thrill for a young kid, you know, to suddenly find you. Yeah, so that's a thrilling memory I have from childhood. Of course, it's completely unimportant, but uh, yeah. No, no, absolutely. I think I, I, there are so much joy at that time when, when you're a child in, in that regard. Yeah. I know you read a lot. So this question uh, will be difficult for you. One book that you think that changed your life? Oh, Vivekananda, without any doubt. Not any particular book of Vivekananda, but generally reading Vivekananda. It changed my life and it keeps changing my life. One place that you would like to visit, maybe you've already visited or you would like to visit uh, around the world. Well, Himalayas, I have, and I would like to go back again sometime. You mentioned the Himalayas. This is not a question on our list, uh, but I've heard you say so many stories about these Himalayan monks. Any anecdote from one of the Himalayan monks that you have met that just comes to your mind right away and, and that makes you giggle or laugh or, you know. Hmm. So there's this monk, uh, he has passed away now, uh, but um, I used to go and sit at his feet and read Ashtavakra in Gangotri. So he was this. He was in in his eighties, very old monk, and a group of monks used to assemble around him and read Ashtavakra. I still remember him sitting there, surrounded. We were we were surrounded. We are in the Gangotri Valley, but we are surrounded by these towering mountains, 
there was snow on the top. It was summer, so there was not snow there in the valley itself. But the mountain tops had snow. There were Devadar forests and the Ganga Bhagirathi rushing by at our feet, uh, just below us. It was extraordinary and a very high spiritual atmosphere. And then he said, I can see it so vivid. He said with his hands pointing around, all around. Ye sab jo hai na, Mahatma ji, dikhta hai. Hai nahi kuch. All of this you see. It is just a sensory experience. You know, you see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, touch it. But beyond it, it has no existence of its own. What he meant was he was teaching that it is consciousness alone which is appearing. It's an all an appearance in consciousness. Thank you for that story. And uh, I think I may know the uh, answer to the next question. Uh, just as a side note, I interviewed Dr. Balu, who has started the Swami Vivekananda Youth Movement in yeah. Mysore a few weeks back. Yeah. And uh, his answer would be this. And I'm just thinking your answer would be the same one person that you would like to meet in history. I guess it would be Swami Vivekananda, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he had the same answers for both questions. And uh, one last question. A message for your younger self, a message for your future self. Oh, that's a, that's a difficult one. You know, one thing is very interesting. After becoming a monk, one thing I've noticed, the questions like, where do you see yourself five years from now? Where do you see yourself ten years from now? All those questions lose um, uh, their their meaning altogether. You have found the path and the goal of your life, the highest goal that our civilization has um, for humanity, that is spiritual enlightenment, attainment of moksha, nirvana, whatever you call it. Now we are on the path. And there is really uh, nothing else uh, to think about. You have to move ahead on the path and attain that. What else will you do if not this? Let me share this with you. Uh, at you would not expect that in Harvard University people will be talking about enlightenment and what is the nature of enlightenment. But they do. There are intense discussions going on in the divinity school, in the philosophy department. In the philosophy department, Professor Parimal Patil, a very brilliant philosopher, formidably so, he asked me a question. Swamiji, answer this. People who attain enlightenment are very few in number. Yes or no? Yes. Then why should one follow this path? What's the point? So I gave two answers. Why we should follow the spiritual path and he gave one more answer the three answers are my first answer was that everybody will attain enlightenment it's just that it may not be in this particular life the hope because the whole game of life is for ultimately for attaining enlightenment in this lifetime or in the other lifetime we will attain so it's not that we will not attain the number of people attaining enlightenment is few and most people are failures not at all so all of us will attain Sri Ramakrishna used to say in Banaras it's the place of Maannapurna. So everybody gets fed. You may get food, uh, you may get your food early in the morning, in the afternoon, and a very few will be at the in the very evening they'll get fed. But nobody goes away hungry. Similarly, for enlightenment, moksha, all will get it. So that's first answer. Second answer is once you are on this path and you begin to understand what it's all about, what else will you do? Uh, I mean, you may do something else, you may be in your day-to-day -day life, you may be a monk or a householder or a businessman or a professor, uh, whatever you are, but your ultimate aim becomes God-realization. Once your ultimate aim has become God-realization, call it enlightenment, moksha, nirvana, whatever it is, what other goal comes even close to it? So it is so wonderful that you know success or failure really doesn't matter. This is what you're going to uh, do lifetime after lifetime if necessary. These are my two answers. 
And Professor Patil gave the best answer. He said, see, Swamiji, those are good answers, but they are theoretical. I'll give you a practical answer. So a wonderful answer he gave. He said that it's not really so much about enlightenment. Once you start on the path, in any religion, any spiritual path, sincerely start practicing spirituality, then the day-to-day -day benefits you get, the peace you get, the sense of meaning and purpose in life you get, even the little bit you're getting from day-to-day, that is enough to keep you going. So that is the third answer, that you are getting continuous benefit day, day after day, week after week, month after month throughout your life. Thank you, Swamiji. I think I, I agree with all three answers. And uh, I think these are wonderful message for... <clears throat> Sorry, my throat just uh, choked up. Uh, maybe because we're getting towards the end. And uh, I would like you to end... Uh, end our conversation with a mantra if you can uh, chant something for us i think it'll be wonderful all right let me chant my favorite om asatoma sadgamaya tamasoma jyotirgamaya mrityurma amritam gamaya om shanti 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 Om, lead us from the unreal to the real, lead us from darkness unto light, lead us from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace. Thank you so much, Swamiji. Thank you so much uh, for being part of this conversation and uh, this podcast. Thank you so much for taking time. I know it's really late in New York for you, but thank you again. Thank you, Nitesh. Take care. Be safe, everybody. It's been a privilege to speak with Swamiji. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Mindful Initiative podcast. If you like what we do, please share it with your friends and family. Mm -hmm.